0: This episode is brought to you by Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill makes billing on the go easy and pain free. Add a patient in as little as three seconds and submit a claim with just a few taps. Start your 45 day free trial today. Visit drbill.appslash CMAJ. That's D R B I L slash CMAJ to get started.
1: I'm Blair Bigum.
0: I'm Mujala Molly.
1: And welcome to the CMAJ Podcast. Joel, in my first year of residency for emergency medicine, I had to do a month of obstetrics. And I remember being pretty terrified. I had delivered a couple of babies as a paramedic, but it's not really something that I felt very well prepared to do. It was always sort of done under emergency circumstance. Mm-hmm. And then you show up on the obstetrics floor and everybody is so calm and cool and collected. And, you know, deliveries would come out of nowhere. It was pretty busy, but everyone seemed to have things under control. And then every once in a while, you'd be in a room for a delivery and there'd just be this atmosphere change. Uh And all these calm, cool and collected people, they would just seem like really nervous and amped up. And I could never really pinpoint it. Usually it had something to do with the toko not looking right. And all of a sudden out would come this vacuum or these forceps and boom, the baby would be out crying and pink and everything would be fine. But I could sense sort of that anxiety amongst people. When the vacuum came out and today we're going to be talking about an article that looks at complications from operative vaginal delivery needing either vacuums or forceps. Have you ever had any experiences in obstetrics Jola.
0: So outside of medical school and delivering my own child, no. (laughs) Um, But I think as a person who has had a vaginal delivery, I definitely was really nervous about having them using forceps, uh, knowing the complications of it. Because I, as a general surgeon, see complications from forcep deliveries that have gone wrong uh, with the third and usually the fourth degree tears uh, that lead to complex issues after.
1: Remind me, what exactly is a fourth-degree tear? Uh,
0: so basically, that is when it's like a complete tear into the um, into the anal verge, and that can lead to fistula formation, uh, third and fourth degrees. Uh, patients can have um, incontinence uh, to both uh, stool and gas, and it's one of the leading causes of anal incontinence uh, in people who have babies. And when and I also I worked in sub-Saharan Africa. And so oftentimes, I will see women with really bad uh, fistulas. And that's not necessarily from instrumentation, but also just from really bad tears. So that's definitely something that I think is very important uh, to uh, talk about. And I'm really looking forward uh, to talking to Julia Maraca and um, our physician today, uh, just regarding what is going on uh, with um, OVD.
1: Yeah, and just to briefly summarize what they've done, they've taken over a million vaginal deliveries and taken a look at complication rates from OVD and found that Canada has higher complication rates than other places in the world, like the UK and New Zealand and Australia. So let's get right into it. Let's go talk to Julia.
0: Dr. Julia Maraca is the lead author on the study. She's currently in Vancouver. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Julia. Happy to be here. So let's just get right into it. What is the top line findings of your study?
2: The top line would be that maternal and neonatal trauma rates are high among forceps and vacuum delivery in Canada period. This is the most compelling finding of our work. And the reason why it's, it seems as though maybe these results aren't earth shattering because we know that operative vaginal delivery or forceps and vacuum delivery confer a high risk of these traumas. But what is really special about the work that we published recently in the CMAJ is that we showed that these rates are consistently high, irrespective of How many of these deliveries a hospital will do each year, irrespective of the tier of obstetric service or level of care of a hospital, whether it be a high-level tertiary care center or a, a local hospital, and also among all the provinces and territories that we studied, which were all of them in Canada except for the province of Quebec.
0: So what was your initial reaction when you did your analysis and you saw the results?
2: Well... It's a great question because truly I've been studying these outcomes among forceps and vacuum delivery since 2016 and the rates of these traumas actually didn't surprise me at all. We've been publishing that these rates have been Mm. high among these deliveries consistently over the last five, six years. So the sheer average trauma rates that we found weren't really surprising to me. What I did find surprising was that we didn't see a modification or a variation in those rates based on the different factors that I just mentioned, based on the level of, of care of hospitals, or even based on how many of the, these deliveries are done among individual hospitals. Does that mean it's not a matter
1: of training that, I mean, whether you do a lot or a little or you're at a top tier or sort of a lower tier hospital the outcomes seem the same. What do you think is getting at this? That?
2: That's certainly what it suggests. Of course, these are observational studies and we've looked at volume of deliveries within hospitals, but what we didn't have was practitioner level data. So had we had practitioner level data, I could answer that with a lot more certainty. I can say, yes, we could see that among practitioners, they did very few of these deliveries per year. And so this is a clear kind of link to the fact that because mm-hmm. obstetricians, residents, maternity care providers have less proficiency in these deliveries, that is what is associated with these higher levels of trauma. So we don't have that information. The smallest unit of information we had was at the hospital level. So we have to be mindful of the fact that some of these outcomes could have been clustered among different practitioners. But certainly what we know from this kind of larger body of work is that number one, our use of these deliveries are certainly declining. And as we're seeing these rates of use decline and the opportunities for training decline, we're also seeing concurrently these rates of trauma increase. So, and this is particularly with forceps deliveries. So, we saw between 2004 and 2014, for example, that the rate of maternal trauma increased with forceps deliveries from 19% to 27%. So all of these trends occurring at the same time are giving us this picture that, yes, there's probably a link between the fact that we're doing these less, operators have less opportunity to gain proficiency in these deliveries and the actual performance of the operative vaginal delivery and perhaps even the knowledge to select the appropriate candidates could be factors in why we're seeing these high rates of trauma.
0: One part that really stuck out is that our rates are worse than other countries. Do you have any kind of ideas or thoughts on why do we see a difference when we're comparing Canada to other countries?
2: Yeah, I I do have some suspicions. They're all speculative, of course. But first, maybe I'll, I'll just describe what you mean when you say we're worse than other countries. So Fortunately, the OECD puts forth these comparative outcomes that look at different kind of domains of safety among all different silos of the healthcare system. And one of the things they look at is maternal trauma with and without the use of instruments. And so in that comparison, Canada has shown to have had the highest rates in 2015, 2017, and 2019 And by a large margin, so it says rates of maternal trauma when we aggregate forceps and vacuum together. Unfortunately, they don't disaggregate in this metric. So in that rate of maternal trauma with forceps and vacuum together, Canada has had a rate around 17%, where our closest neighbor with the second highest rates have rates closer to 11%. So it's by a huge margin. And so when we look at that, there's a lot of differences that we could infer that this was due to differences in reporting. And probably likely there is some of the reason for these differences is differences in reporting. But when we see that the results of the study that came out last week in the CMAJ that looked at these rates sliced in all these different ways, it's apparent that these inflated rates cannot be 100% due to reporting error it just doesn't make any sense that we would see it in every tier of service we would see it in every hospital in every province in you know Mm -hmm. all the multitude of ways that we've cut this up and and tried to analyze it to try to figure this out so so it doesn't look like it's a reporting issue also we have uh, validation studies on the codes that we use to to identify these cases and they all have very high sensitivity and specificity and so those issues with reporting, they probably have some of an effect, but I speculate that it's definitely not the majority of the reason why we're seeing these differences in rates.
1: Julia, do other countries have as rigorous a data set? Is it just that we report more frequently? I know that within Canada, the reporting seems quite solid, but for these comparisons, are we actually actually worse off or do you think we just know that it happens better?
2: So that's a great question, Blair. So in different countries that have national health registers of demonstrated high accuracy, I question whether that is a huge factor in the differences that we're seeing. Of course, there are other countries that are also compared in these analyses for which we don't have such evidence of rigorous data collection, but for a good proportion, we do.
1: And is it that they, do they just go to C-section quicker or are they more patient to wait for a spontaneous delivery? I, I, I don't know. I'm... I don't have a lot of yeah. Uh, yeah, these sense the, of why why the countries are so different.
2: Yeah. So we're comparing between Sweden, we're comparing with the US, we're comparing with Finland, we're comparing with Denmark. So when you think of that sub subgroup, so we're seeing that in places like Denmark, Finland, Sweden, they have far lower rates of cesarean delivery. So it can't be these lower rates of trauma can't be explained by Oh well, they're just doing more cesarean deliveries in those scenarios. Perhaps in the U.S. it could, but their rates of cesarean, cesarean delivery are are higher, but if the differential isn't uh, great enough. That would be that would be the reason. So you also mentioned maybe it's because are they just waiting it out longer? Are they allowing women to deliver? I think uh, arguably that is one of the reasons why we're seeing lower rates in some of the Nordic countries. I mean, it's well established that they're non-interventional relative to Canadian or North American standards. So that could be a reason. But again, this is all speculative. I do want to mention that one of the big differences we see and the real comparator we should be looking at, in my opinion, is the United Kingdom because they have a similar distribution of the use of these instruments. So the UK has maternal trauma rates with forceps and vacuum delivery that are far lower. So 4% 4% in vacuum, 8% in forceps, for example. And one of the big differences we see is the use of episiotomy. So we know from all of the excellent randomized studies, m- many of which were conducted in Canada in the 90s, that we routine use of episiotomy is not recommended with spontaneous vaginal delivery, so unassisted vaginal delivery. And so we have seen the rates of episiotomy decline with spontaneous vaginal delivery over the last 20 years, which is fantastic and appropriate, given the evidence. We've also seen these d- declines in forceps and vacuum delivery in Canada, not in the United Kingdom. And we're seeing much lower mm-hmm. use of episiotomy with these instruments. Now, another analysis that we published in the CMAG in 2018 showed that when we use forceps, an episiotomy in naliparous women actually confers a high protective value.
0: So they're
1: less likely to get a bad tear if you do the episiotomy before the forceps.
2: In nulliparous women. But- the same is true in nulliparous women for vacuum. Important to note was not the case in Paris women, which I guess is intuitive. So women who have had a previous mm-hmm. vaginal birth, we did not see any effect. And in fact, with vacuum, we saw an increase in obstetric anal sphincter injury with episiotomy. So really the take home mm-hmm. message of that work is that vaginally nulliparous women or women who have not had a previous vaginal delivery have lower rates of maternal trauma if an episiotomy is conducted alongside their forceps or vacuum delivery. And we're not doing that in Canada at nearly the same rates as they're doing in the United Kingdom or even in Australia and New Zealand, for example. So my, uh, I speculate that this is one of the main reasons why we're seeing these higher rates of trauma in, our, in Canadian women compared to women in these other countries.
0: Another topic that you touched on in your article was talking about women knowing about the risk associated with these as you know, as we all kind of have an idea that, you know, that moment when there needs to be a progression to using operative vaginal delivery is always tends to be quite hectic and maybe not necessarily the best time to be communicating these discussions. In terms of from your position, how do you think that could improve people who are giving birth being more knowledgeable about this?
2: Yeah, this is a, it brings up a whole kind of uh, world of scholarship around informed consent in pregnancy, which is a, another three podcasts on its own. So, most of the literature on when we should have these discussions with women. Res- concludes that we should have these conversations antenatally. Now this is easy to say but we know that time is short and we're really trying to pack in a lot of information and we don't want to overwhelm pregnant individuals. So I realize that sometimes we like to throw this word around we should counsel antenatally but truly this is happening in one in four pregnant individuals who undergo these uh, interventions. These are very high frequencies and if we aren't telling women about this, we're really doing a huge disservice to women's autonomy and their opportunity to have informed consent and really choose, um, be informed about how, about the outcome of their childbirth, the potential outcomes of their childbirth. So I, I think that it has to be a priority that we start speaking about the risks of not just operative vaginal delivery, of course, but all of the potential outcomes of a halt in the progression of labor or if there is risks that require an intervention. So
0: what do you think is next in terms of this research? Like, wh- where do you see this going next for you yeah. and for your team?
2: So so one of the things that needs to be discussed, I think, front and center is the long-term consequences of some of these injuries complications like sexual problems, dysperunia, PTSD, other mental health morbidities, but perhaps most distressingly, fecal and anal incontinence. So we're seeing rates after 20 years post-delivery of between 20 and 25% of fecal incontinence in women who have had an injury like this. And when I speak about mm. fecal incontinence, this is involuntary loss of solid or liquid stool. This is a serious Horrible complication. And this is only what we know is reported. There are many individuals who never come forth and never seek care because of the shame and stigma associated with these uh, complications. So I'm very interested in seeing what the medium and long term outcomes are in the Canadian population. And the other area is to look at some of the the modifiers. So I want to take a closer look again of the use of episiotomy and how we might be able to bundle care packages and quality improvement care packages to reduce these rates of injuries. And lastly, I... I'm very excited. I have a brilliant master's student at Mijin Park who's interested in looking at the the intersectional effects of race and immigration status in these outcomes in Canada. So we know that Asian women have more than twofold higher rates of obstetric anal sphincter injury compared to other races in in. And this data comes from Canada, from the U.S., and from European countries. So this has consistently been found that Asian women have higher rates of these these injuries. So we're really interested in looking at or, you know, trying to figure out what the reasons for that are. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jola. Thanks, Blair. Dr. Julia Maraca is an
0: assistant professor in obstetrics and gynecology at McMaster University and the lead author of the National Court Study titled... Maternal Neonatal Trauma Following Operative Vaginal Delivery. It's in the CMAJ. Now, while the findings in Dr. Maraka's study might surprise some of us, neither one of us are OBGYNs. So we wanted help to understand what they mean to practitioners and their patients.
1: And for that, we turn to Nirmala Chantasekran, an obstetrician and gynecologist and maternal fetal medicine specialist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Nirmalag, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me. Before
1: we get into the study, can you just help me understand what circumstances arise where OBs decide to turn to OVD?
3: So the OVDs are actually done um, in order to facilitate uh, vaginal delivery when, for three indications. One is when uh, the mother is uh, exhausted, having had a long second stage of pushing. So in order to assist vaginal delivery, we do that. The second indication is where when there is uh, fetal distress and uh, the baby needs to be delivered sooner, so we help the mother with OVD. And the third is for maternal indications where the mother cannot valsalva or push a lot um, because of various health conditions. And then we may have to reduce the uh, second stage of labor by cutting it short using an instrumental delivery.
0: And just to make it clear, the choices that you have at these stages are either OVD or taking that patient to a Mm C-section. So just to give our listeners an understanding of what's going through your mind when you're trying to deliver, should I do forceps, or should I take this person to a C-section?
3: Well, there are a few things that we actually look at um, to decide between one or the other, really. The first and foremost is whether or not the patient is fully dilated, And second, what is the station of the fetal head, which is where the head is in relation to the ischial spines, that is how low the head is in the pelvis, in other words. So if the head is really low in the pelvis and uh, the maternal effort is good and uh, the pelvis seems adequate, then operative vaginal delivery would be the go-to for all of us. But if the fetal head is uh, is is above the uh, station at which we would be comfortable doing an instrumental delivery, or if it is malposition, or if we think it is not going to work, then we choose a cesarean section. So it's not exactly black and white, but some, you know, sometimes we do have to think twice, and sometimes we do it in the OR, because if we are doubtful whether or not it's going to work, then uh, we take the call that is safe. So, what do you think of
1: these numbers in Dr. Maraca's study? Do you think they're real? Do you think there's some artifact? Are they higher? Or are they lower?
3: It could be a little lower, but I'm sure it is not that low because of certain reasons, right? In North America, the use of uh, forceps has been reducing and we know that. Um, They actually did a study in the US, which which actually looked at um, what the comfort level of physicians and residents and fellows is for forceps. And almost more than half of them said they were not comfortable. So it is a training issue in North America compared to Europe. So maybe that is playing a part? In terms of
1: training, Julia was talking about how fewer and fewer forcep deliveries are happening and how residents might not be getting enough exposure to that in training. She had quoted a study that said in a five-year residency they might only do a handful, less than twelve forcep deliveries. That now you did your residency in the UK, which I, mm-hmm. I know has a very long training route. I'm wondering, do you think that there's a role for residency education here to help reduce the risk of fourth degree injury?
3: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So the training pattern is quite different. Yes, we did have a longer training route in the UK. And the way the training works is also that it's a seven-year program. And from three, the, from the three, third year onwards, you are practicing independently, which means you do not have a staff holding your hand. So by two years, you're meant to, be, meant to be signed off for your forceps, your vacuum and cesarean sections and things like that. And after that, it is you and that's it. What is diff- difficult in a training somebody is actually not the technical aspects of it. It's it's easy to uh, train them to, OK, this is how you apply the blades and this is how you make the direction of pull. That's easy. We can do the simulations, no problem which, in fact, we do a lot at St. Michael's Hospital. But what is difficult in training residents is actually when not to use forceps, when to choose the right instrument, when not to to resort to operative vaginal delivery at all and go for a cesarean section, and, and, and when not to choose the instrument where you won't have to need a second instrument. So those are the things that is difficult to train, more around um, the judgment
1: and the clinical correct, decision,
3: correct. and the clinical decision making as to what to do and what not to do—that I find a little bit difficult, and that is not it may not be possible in a five-year uh, residency program where you have consultant present all the time.
0: I guess that to speak a little bit about that, like residency programs are changing to it being competency by design mm-hmm. versus just sheer numbers. When I went through residency training, it was just volume. Like we had right. I had a sticker book of right. all the cases that I've done, but now they're switching to competency by design. So there's actually not knowing how many they've done. Like, does there need to be a bit of a standard in the sense of like you have to have been involved in this many forceps or vacuum delivery and actually quantify the number given that it could be a bit of a hit or miss depending on where you are and like where which hospital you're based in during your trip?
3: I mean, if you look at the study in itself, they have addressed one thing. When the number of forceps deliveries are about 30, there is actually a slight drop in OAC and the maternal morbidity. So there is there is that element of when you do more, you have less complications But with regards to the technical aspects of it, I don't think it's the number that actually matters. Uh, I I do think the judgment issues, we need to go through it. And I don't believe they have to do a lot more, but definitely doing enough is important in order to maintain your competences. But what is important is actually... uh, perhaps uh, we have all this CBDs and all those things that are coming up now. So maybe further discussion as to when you would not do it and when you would do it and all that. More of that.
1: We've been talking a lot about training and the frequency that you get during your residency training for doing these procedures to gain competence. I'm having a little bit of trouble driving that with the data from the study that showed that it didn't really matter about the annual volume of OVDs, or if you were in a very high class center or more of a a smaller center, it seemed that, you know, the rates of injury were about the same. Mm -hmm. Can we really pin all of this on training and experience? Or are there other factors at play that might explain why Canada has a 17% rate while the Scandinavian countries and Australia, New Zealand, and the UK had much lower rates? Is there something other than training that can help us understand this problem?
3: There are a little bit of unknown factors in the study because it's a database one. The study does say that it doesn't depend on the institutions. It doesn't depend on the, uh, the tier of uh, maternity care and all that. But still, you know, if you're going through a five-year training uh, program where you have done only like five forceps or six forceps, then you go on to become the staff. Of course, um, then that is the issue. And of course, we haven't teased out that data at all. And it's very hard to do that. I do think training plays a big part.
0: I guess the other question is that, you know, we're talking about the volume that the residents are seeing, but why is it that we have less of OVDs in Canada just in general compared to the UK?
3: Excellent question, actually, which I was uh, actually thinking when I came to Canada, why are we doing less compared to what was happening in the UK? I think it is, I mean, even in our institution, not not all obstetricians are comfortable uh, with forceps deliveries. And that is the case with every single institution. There would be only a handful of people that actually do forceps deliveries. And and again, because of that, the the, the training also gets affected for the uh, the residents. I mean, they're not going to get trained because there is only like a couple of physicians that do in every um single unit. So it, it kind of, I don't know whether the comfort level went down because of lack of training or lack of experience or people became comfortable doing cesarean sections. And that could be one of, the, one of the reasons also, because we do cesarean sections all the time. And so we become very comfortable and we resort to cesarean sections.
1: Do you think that explains the decrease in forcep deliveries over time oh. that people go to C-section instead of forcep?
3: For sure, for sure. I mean, if you look at um, the WHO data regarding what the safe number of cesarean deliveries is, and they only quote like 15%, and they go after 15%, there is no benefit um, in uh, improving the maternal or neonatal morbidity or mortality. But now the current rates of cesarean sections are close to 30%. So the caesarean section rates are going up and hence there is a a big drive uh, to actually reduce the number of caesarean sections um, because caesarean sections are not benign either. They do have short-term problems, but they do have long-term problems also. The amount of placenta accreta spectrum disorders have gone up tremendously. We're seeing more Mm. and more Mm -hmm. of them. I mean, we know that uh, caesarean sections have a higher chance of stillbirth in the next pregnancies, preterm birth, ectopic pregnancies... So it is not entirely benign. It's not about, okay, for deliveries versus second state cesarean sections, but what is the long-term effect of cesarean sections also?
0: That is a really important point um, because that I think often is missed out in understanding that. I guess the question I was going to ask you regarding that is, is, does medical legal play into it? Because if you look at the U.S. data, they don't, like, they don't have a lot of forceps and OVDs. Right. And that's because they're a very litiginous country. Mm-hmm. So do you think in Canada, like I was looking at the CMPA of obs of what are the, what basically what do you guys get sued for the most? And <laughs> this is one of the things right. that you guys right. get dinged on a lot. So does that also play into it? I do think it does
3: have a uh, role to play. And the one thing that has increased the cesarean section rates, and it is well known in the literature, is continuous fetal monitoring. We keep putting everybody, whether low risk or high risk, even though there is no reason to, to put on everybody on the uh, continuous tocogram. we do mm-hmm. end up have, doing more cesarean sections. We do see more fetal heart rate decelerations mm-hmm. and we have to act on it. And if you look at the high rock and CMPA, the reasons for medical legal suits against OBs is abnormal fetal heart tracings. So, of course, that does play a major role and it's... Uh, and that probably, I mean, that did increase the cesarean section rates, the continuous electronic fetal monitoring, and it's well known.
1: This is so interesting. High Rock being sort of the, the CMPA equivalent for hospitals, right. the insurance right. uh, company right. for hospitals in Canada, yeah. and CMPA yeah. covering us as individual physicians. Physicians, but, so yeah. So what's the bottom line here, Nirmala? When you look at this study and this data, is this going to change your behavior tomorrow at work? Are you going to be more likely to jump to C-section to avoid... No a fourth degree injury. Tell me what an obstetrician takes away from this study.
3: So there are two things to take away from the study. One is, um, yes, we do need some data to counsel women as to what the uh, implications are for having an operative uh, vaginal delivery. And so it is a data that can guide physicians to counsel women. And the second thing to take off is, okay, how do we actually, I mean, we don't want to do either. We don't want to do instrumental deliveries. We do not want to do um, second state cesarean sections also. So how do we reduce this? Maybe we have to concentrate a little bit on that, rather than saying these procedures should not be done. So... We can educate women well. One-to-one care, which is actually proven again and again with multiple uh, studies and even Cochrane database, has reduced the amount of uh, interventions during labor. So concentrate on that. Manage labor So what do you
0: mean by one-to-one care?
3: So from, I think it was about 14 studies in the Cochrane database, they actually say if a woman has a one-to-one care, like either with a midwife or a doula or a nurse, Maternity nurse who actually stays with them constantly and provides emotional support throughout labor, a lot of interventions can be reduced and coach them as to how to labor, how to uh, push, what positions to adapt and emotionally, you know, keeping them strong. Use of oxytocin at the right time, intervening at the right time. So those could be done to reduce all these interventions. And the third thing is training, training, training.
1: The one thing we haven't touched on yet is the episiotomy rate that Dr. Maraka was saying is very different between different countries. And she had pointed to some guideline differences between SOGC and a couple of other national forums. In Canada, is there a recommendation that's sort of a bit weak on episiotomy? Or is that sort of maybe not borne out in, in, in the field?
3: I mean, uh, honestly, none of the guidelines actually say you have to use episiotomies. And none of the guidelines actually say that episiotomy actually prevents um, third or fourth degree tears. Okay. But we have to look back on the data with, which, are, which is published regarding operative vaginal deliveries and the use of episiotomies. And it is protective. And all the data kind of, uh, all the guidelines kind of say, you know, use it with the operator's discretion. But the operator should know when to use it. And that's the thing.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> and do you think because the UK does more of it, there's just there's just a higher comfort level with doing the episiotomies with the, with the OVDs?
3: I think so. I think so. And also, it's not just the episiotomies. There's data to suggest how to do an episiotomy also. So what is the angle that you should be using to avoid a third and fourth degree tears?
0: I thought you guys just cut down. I didn't know there was an angle to <laughs> no, there it. there is. <laughs> this is actually scaring me to not want a second child. <laughs>
3: Please don't do that. Please don't do that. All of us obstetricians have multiple children. And
0: we were all fine. Well, so, you guys are a spe- You guys are a special breed. You're like pediatricians. You're like, I want five kids. And I'm like... That's a strong endorsement there. (laughs) No,
3: no, no. So honestly, operative delivery has its place and will always have its place um, in obstetric practice. I don't think we should give out uh, messaging saying they should not be used at all. I don't want to be a baby in bathwater situation. We have to think of how to improve this morbidity rates. And we also have to take the data with a grain of salt because this is a database study. So there are a lot of limitations. So we shouldn't be using it entirely to guide our practice, but we should take away certain things from the study for sure.
1: Nirmala, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so interesting.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
1: Dr. Nirmala Chandrasakran is an OBGYN and specialist in maternal fetal medicine at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Jola, we cut the recording just before Nirmala said something so revealing. Yes, She said... OVD is going to be a lost art and it was. It, she was sad about it because she really does feel that there are women and babies who benefit from OVD. Maybe they're in a center that can't just go straight to C-section or maybe we're doing a few too many C-sections, which in and of themselves can come with complications. I thought that was so revealing. I wish we got it on tape.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very important point that supported the whole entire um, article uh, in the sense of this is such an important tool in the toolkit of obstetrics and, you know, it seems that it is a dying art. And maybe that's what's reflected in the data is that because of the numbers and volumes that are being done, we are seeing more complications in uh, Canada than in other countries.
1: Especially with what sounds like a more conservative approach to episiotomy and maybe some other ways that uh, through training we could reduce some of the grade 3 and grade 4 injuries that people are experiencing.
0: Yes, and I think from just uh, talking to both uh, Dr. Maraka and Dr. Chandrasekram, it seems as if training is an important uh, aspect of trying to get um, these uh, complication rates lower in Canada. Exactly how we can do that still needs to be fleshed out a bit more. And so that seems to be maybe the next part uh, of this is how do we uh, equip the trainees uh, that are coming out with the ability to make an informed decision? As Dr. Chenda had said, it's not necessarily about how to do it, but when to do it.
1: And it sounds like at St. Mike's, you're already doing a fair amount of simulation around this type of stuff. It it makes me think in the emergency department, we have this term called HALO, these high acuity, low opportunity skills like a lateral canthotomy or a thoracotomy. Um, And I just think about how we train for those. We spend time in cadaver labs and anatomy labs and simulators for that sort of once in a lifetime opportunity um, to do something that may have a big impact.
0: So this was a really great episode, and um, hopefully as much as we learned, our listeners also learned from it.
1: That's it for this week on the CMAJ podcast. Tune in in two weeks for our next episode. I'm Blair Bigham.
0: And I'm Mojola Amale. Until then, be well.